Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing the dark history of the Lake of the Ozarks. In fact, there's so much to talk about. This is part two. First, we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or about any other podcast platform. So is the history and lore of the Lake of the Ozarks as noir as a certain TV show with a certain name? Fiction really doesn't have anything on the real story. From gangsters before there was a mafia to bloody feuds and murder, not to mention tales of monsters, hauntings, and more, the Ozarks do not disappoint in their rich history, and Hollywood can't beat those stories. We will return to the Lake of the Ozarks, but first we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book, Dark Ozarks, The Spook Light. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and on the website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com, for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's Best Brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with the Noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. Lake of the Ozarks is extraordinarily iconic as a, certainly as a lake, but even just as a landmark. And it is so, because of the name, is such that there are a number of people I've spoken with, particularly people in the Kansas City and the St. Louis areas, that so associate Lake of the Ozarks with the Ozarks Plateau that they will have a tendency to ask me if, for example, Southern Missouri is in the Ozarks or if Arkansas is in the Ozarks. And really, Southern Missouri and Northern Arkansas is the heart of the Ozarks. The lake is the northern end. In so many ways, yes. I mean, it, and it is, it's very uniquely and centrally located, essentially between <laughs> between I-70 and I-44. Yes, <laughs> pretty and, much. And, 
that, and of course, I-44 overlays the old Route 66. So in terms of the basic base. So our Route 66 history has a close interaction with Lake of the Ozarks region. We're going to be talking about that. But the lake itself from, in some cases, seemingly creating its own weather patterns to having its you know, lost towns, lost graveyards that is in there, spaces like Haha Tonka, uh, some really interesting uh, vigilante and criminal lore that's been associated with this. The area was also really interesting in terms of the complexities of the Civil War and are highlighted and, and you know, study of that highlights the fact that the the Civil War was just such an extremely complex terrain, societal terrain during the Civil War as well. Very much so. And of course, that predated the, the lake. But the lake has just layered the mystique and, and lore, I think. And it is kind of hard to discuss that area without giving homage to Route 66, as you mentioned earlier. I think it's, you know, it's worthy of note, too, that for a lot of people, you may not know that Route 66, although it's, you know, from Chicago to L.A., was born in the Ozarks. It was conceived of and originally planned in proceedings that occurred in Springfield, Missouri. So even though, yes, it goes through the Ozarks, we can really lay claim to it for, for it coming into being, too. And I believe Route 66 opened in 1926, making the route, Route 66, actually five years older than Lake of the Ozarks. That's true. That is true. So it, it was in play. It was a going concern when the lake filled up. And along with it, you just had a lot of iconic stops along the way. And I think we might touch on Lebanon a little bit and, and the Gasconade Hotel. I, I find this very interesting. Um, I, I do. Mainly because, and we've talked in other episodes about centers in the Ozarks that are renowned for healing waters and special springs, etc. But in Lebanon, they found magnetic water, and it was the occasion to build a grand hotel over it. It is one of these aspects, of course. Healing water, magic water, has captured the imagination of those interested in North America from just realistically not very long after the, the beginning of Spanish colonization. Um, again, True. referencing the Fountain of Youth, Ponce de Leon, and the, the, its association with St. Augustine, which is a, another historic location, oldest city in America and a place in Florida that I absolutely love. But I can't help but draw some comparisons. There was always the mystique around healing waters or magical waters, the idea that, that water is imbued with energy, it is imbued with life. And certainly in the by the 19th century, you know, you look at the progress that was being made with through science, 
you look at, for example, the spiritualism movement that we discussed in depth in an earlier episode, and the that early spiritualism movement really pushed to wed science and the and the paranormal or science and the supernatural looking for and and of course this was a very heady time when scientific breakthroughs technological breakthroughs that we take for granted or even think of as old timey was not only very new but also looked like magic or it looked like metaphysics and those those pushes in that aspect of public consciousness allowed for a lot of interest in ozark waters Mm-hmm. And that interest could very easily translate into investors in expensive hotels that in retrospect might seem very much out of place, but clearly did not at the time. And there were a number of individuals who were willing to put a lot of money into this particular endeavor. Exactly. And, and the Gasconade Hotel was was one, and it was renowned as one of the largest grandest hotels in the region with up to 500 guests which when you think about it that is a lot of people for the 1800s in a small town it really really is and it, it also really speaks to that comparatively rapid transition that we see from early settlement when places like Lebanon and many other uh, small towns were essentially outposts on the frontier mm-hmm. to rapidly transitioning into, first of all, tourist centers or centers of commerce, but second of all, suddenly growing towns in the center of the nation instead of tiny outposts on the edge of the nation. That's true. And you do have to wonder what may have happened if the hotel had not burned down. It burned down in 1899. And if it had not burned down, it may have ended up being as much of a mecca drawing people over time as Eureka Springs, the Hot Springs, etc. But for but for a fire. Mm-hmm. And that is also something that I, I I think is easy to lose sight on. And it to me, it really speaks. It's coming out of this tradition, this headlong push for technology, this headlong push for industry. The fact that, for example, the, the capacity to rapidly create various aspects of what we would think of as comparatively modern infrastructure was there, but oftentimes done so in ways that were were very shakily underpinned. You look at the riverboat industry on the Mississippi and the Missouri, and the fact that they were building what was essentially these technological marvels of the day. They were, were, we were dealing with state-of-the-art technology and and the use of the steam engine in really phenomenal ways creating larger and larger and grander boats that could carry more people could carry more cargo but were they were doing it in such an incredibly rapid and, and quite frankly incredibly reckless way that 
hundreds of these boats literally just blew up yes. uh, with, you know, with a full crew and a full cargo. And in some cases, hundreds, if not many hundreds of passengers on board when it exploded. There's more than one account of steamboats spontaneously combusting St. Louis port and literally killing bystanders blocks away from the flying mm-hmm. debris. And here with the, this particular hotel and so many other hotels at the end of even, you know, throughout essentially the, the latter half of the 19th century, we see these grand hotels, 500 rooms. I mean, a 500 room resort is a big resort today. And yes, it is. <laughs> that's, and the, this palatial spaces, these extraordinary spaces that were erected. And then essentially, what do we have for fire suppression system? Oh, right. We don't. Yeah. Well, those things, you know, really had not been invented and people didn't, didn't th- you don't think about what you don't know about, basically. So no. it was just a, a risk that everyone took. And you just hope that you weren't in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and that's where we see something notable about the Basin Park Hotel in Eureka Springs and the Old English Inn in, in Hollister. A selling point, a huge marketing point for both hotels is that they're fireproof. And also, in, in the case of the Old English Inn, that it's built to be fireproof. In the case of the Basin Park Hotel, not only built of non-combustible materials, but also that every single one of its towering floors had a ground exit. Yes. You know, thought was put in, but mainly because of these other events that happened that they saw happen other places. So, you know, it's it's a side note. It's not related to Lake of the Ozarks, although it is a deep part of the Ozarks history. If memory serves, the Southern was the hotel that was on the footprint of the Basin Park Hotel. And I believe it was a five story wooden hotel, which did burn to the ground with a number of lives lost. And Mm -hmm. the Basin Park Hotel is built on that footprint. And many of the hauntings that take place in the Basin Park Hotel can be perhaps attributed to deaths that occurred in the previous structure. And that's that's very fair. That's very fair. Again, things could have been much different for Lebanon if the resort and and it was a sanitarium as well, if it had not burned. Once you get Route 66, another iconic establishment is built in 1946. And that's the Munger Moss Motel, which complete with very colorful neon sign, et cetera, that is iconic. And if you haven't seen it in person, you probably have seen it on a postcard somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. It's, and I think obviously the Motor Hotel, it's it's possible there's a number of people who don't realize that motel is actually a portmanteau. Um, the uh, the combination of the words motor hotel and the idea that it's the peak of of modernism at the time mm-hmm. that you in your independent individually driven modern automobile could conveniently and efficiently pull directly up in front of your room 
Yes, I I remember as a child asking my dad at, at one point. So what what's the real difference between a motel and a hotel? And my dad, being being the engineer, was well a motel. The doors are on the outside, and you don't go inside the lobby to go in your room. It's like okay. And I I grew up very fortunate to have taken so many road trips across the United States. It was uh, automobile travel and, and taking long road trips was a was a huge part of my uh, of, of my life. And I I have such a such a special place in my heart for this uh, what is now a somewhat iconic experience mm-hmm. of the small privately owned motels that you check in at the front desk and then pull around to your room unload directly in first there's a requisite visit to the ice machine and and uh then you enjoy the air conditioning and try to ignore the ringing in your head for the fact that you have literally been on the highway for 16 hours and it's and and of course lots of lots of neon I'm probably going to be jumping all over the place just in terms of my references tonight, but I have a very distinct, very early childhood memory of another one of these very small, iconic motels in Murdo, South Dakota, right next to the classic auto car museum. It's on the main road across South Dakota. And I remember falling asleep while looking out the window the, the the blinds were pulled but of course there, there's always spaces and the room was being illuminated in a neon green from mm-hmm. the motel sign the one of those very tall neon green motel uh-huh. signs. and i just remember that as this extraordinarily magical experience and and of course, Munger Moss really fits that. It really does. Now, you, that description that sounds like the beginning of a noir movie, but <laughs> which I which I like as well. Oh, and I grew up with those kind of trips as well. And I think that there's there's something lost in not having that experience. And in the age of Airbnb and bid box. Uh, hotels with by chains you lose something of that magic I think that comes along with a motel that is unique to a particular spot it is and and of course very similar designs in many cases but we're talking about again these mid-century experiences these mid-century designs and there is something unique about it. Mm-hmm. And, and for those of us who were, were fortunate enough to have those experiences, you can remember, even though the, the basic layout is going to be the same, you remember specific details that were unique to each location. Yes. Which are then for me associated with the area that they were in. And it just makes it a a very colorful memory. You don't get as much of on the interstate system, unfortunately. No, in many cases you really do not. And you know, we we all understand the importance of having an increased 
highway infrastructure. But Route 66 captured a, a, a public consciousness that no other road in the United States, no other road in the world has managed to do. Very true. And evidence of that is that tourists from Europe, from Japan, from Australia, all come to travel Route 66. What are your thoughts in terms of the, the power of this iconic space? It's the American myth. It is the iconic American myth that nowhere else in the world really realized. Australia to a little bit of an extent, but, but not as much as America. This idea of wandering and traveling across a continent and experiencing history unrolling the old west that a kind of environment that existed nowhere else and in some respects didn't even exist here right <laughs> but we tell ourselves it did <laughs> And it, at least enough of the pieces of it in microcosm could exist. Yes. I think it's it's interesting that, you know, you look at throughout history, you look at modern history, 19th and particularly 20th century, you're presented with great, you know, large monolithic narratives that involve a great deal of propaganda in varying mm -hmm. degrees. Perhaps something very powerful about the the myth of Route 66 is that it is carried and propagated not from the top down but from the bottom up by the individuals who are actually experiencing it. Very true, and and in in a real sense, it was the first integrated or long stretch of road that was available to basically everyone. Yes, and not a turnpike. You don't pay to ride on. Right. You're you're free to to travel as far as you want and turn off and go you know on your own adventures off the beaten path. And it was unique in the I think the number of kitsch unique places along it whether it were motor court hotel motels or the largest ball of yarn in the world or whatever it may have been that it became its own universe so to speak that was separate from the rest of the world and the rest of america it it became whimsical it became authentic but not authentic all at the same time and it it is one of those realities we look back at the the tourist attractions lined route 66 and we look at the the nostalgia we look at the sentimentalism we look at the kish we look at the the gimmicks that are involved in the uh in the historic narrative but at the time it was individuals needing to wanting to in many cases I suspect desperately needing to just make a living and being presented with how on earth that we do, do we do that? And, and the, and the, the, 
the the great expression of the uh, of the American narrative, doing so largely without uh, zoning codes in the process. <laughs> yes, exactly. I I was just thinking it's it's no different than people being influencers now. They're trying to figure out a way to make a living or achieve that American dream. And what, so if you have something unique that people going by, oh, that's interesting looking, I'll stop there. That's what they did. And the idea that you look at traditional, for example, homeowners association or zoning laws, et cetera, uh, going to the board and saying, yes, I really do want, and I am going to put a 40 foot cement dinosaur in my front yard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would not happen in most places today. <laughs> no. And that that I think is, you know, there, there is a a narrative of American individuality, a narrative of self-expression, this idea of, of personal sovereignty and risk taking. Perhaps Route 66 became iconic of a new frontier. I think so. And Really, I think the word that comes to mind is boldness. Yes, yeah, 100%, which, again, matches this idea. And you look at the cars of the time, right? and I still contend that the messaging of the car, muscle car era, the, the golden era in the 60s and 70s, you know, the, mm -hmm. the car looks at you and says, I am sleek, I am muscular, I am powerful, I am sexy. And... Now we have designs that say, hi, I'm a safety conscious jelly bean. <laughs> we've, you and we've had this conversation a number of times. <laughs> In person, on the phone, and by text. And yes. There's, there's just, you know, and I'm, I'm personally torn by the fact that I, I love getting into a modern vehicle that instantly recognizes my iPhone and starts playing my music. But you know, it, at the same time, there is something so primal and so human mm -hmm. about those the earlier iteration of American cars, approximately 19, I would say 1950 to 1975. Agreed. Although I, I tell you, some of, the, some of the 30s and 40s are, are pretty cool, too. That they are. That they are. And I'm anticipating some upcoming episodes that will include a few of those and some of the Ozarks culture that, that developed as a result of that technology. Sounds good to me. I the, agree. Now, as with with all of this, there the bright shiny side, there's also the dark side. Any of these stories, the, the lore and history surrounding Devil's Elbow, just south, comparatively speaking, of Lake of the Ozarks and directly associated with Route 66 is particularly of note. It is. It is one of my favorite stories, and that is one reason I did include it in one of my books. But it's unique in that it really is murder that was unpunished and murder on the run and could still be on the run. And many people have either forgotten or don't know the story this is one story that I, I found particularly satisfying when I wrote about it. And I wrote about it in my book, Missouri's Wicked Route 66, Gangsters and Outlaws on the Mother Road. Because I was talking, 
Uh, real quick for our video audience, I do want you to show the front cover. Okay. Yeah, up close and personal. It is available on Amazon as well as other locations and throughout the Ozarks. Yes, yes. A lot of stores do carry it. But I found this very, very satisfying that I wrote about it because I was contacted by members of some of the victim's family thanking me for writing about it and keeping the story going because the story starts in 1968 and Devil's Elbow itself it sits along the Big Piney River and it's named after a bend in the river and a Devil's Elbow you find it in different places but it, it's a hairpin bend in a river that usually causes rapids or other obstacles and so that's how the moniker gets applied to it. And in this case, it's in Pulaski County. It's not, it's not far from Rolla and Waynesville. And it's not that far down the road from Fort Leonard Wood, which is an army base. Back in 1968, on the base, there, there's the service club. The Soto Service Club was very active. It was a very popular restaurant. And they were robbed of about $3,600 by two men. And three employees were in the, in the building at the time. They were all taken hostage and driven to Devil's Elbow, told to get out of the car, lay face down, and they were all shot in the head. Shortly thereafter, they had suspect Dino Hurd and his brother Chester. They were charged, and they were charged in federal court with murder and the robbery because it was on government property. They ended up being convicted, receiving life sentences, but on appeal, they appealed the conviction, and the Court of Appeals determined that they were sentenced under the wrong statute and that they could only be sentenced for the robbery and ended up, they were sentenced to 15, uh, 15 years. Chester actually was not convicted on that part, but Dino was. And part of the reason for that, and they ended up saying they shouldn't have been charged with, with the murder under the federal statute. And that may seem confusing, but the, I think the reason for that probably would have been that the murder took place at Devil's Elbow and was not on government property. So in that kind of situation, the federal, federal court didn't have jurisdiction for, for murder charge. So they basically left it to the local prosecutor to file murder charges, which basically they, you know, him hawed around. And on retrial for the robbery, they tried to argue, Dino tried to argue that he had an alibi, that he was working at the hair salon that he owned the night of the robbery. But it ended up that his witness was mistaken on her date and they were able to prove it. He ended up spending time in, in prison for the robbery, but he's never faced murder charges, although pretty much everyone knows he did it. Chester ended up committing suicide a few years later, but after, after Dino got out of prison, he basically dropped out of sight 
no one's ever seen him again and it's presumed that he's living has been living out of state under an assumed name so there's been some activity trying to track him down to see if he's still alive that kind of thing in order to charge him but they have never been successful in doing so mm. so basically the murder went unpunished and the murder is still on the run if he's still alive yes and he was a relative he was pretty young at the time he was in his 20s so he could still be alive but yeah been uh, on the run for a long time because he he served uh, he served us 15 years and they got out it is tragic story that is interestingly enough directly associated with a, a geographic space that has a very spooky name it does i mean it seems an appropriate setting for something that dark to have happened um although maybe been just coincidence but yeah. This is a little bit of trajectory on this, but the number of places in the Ozarks that are named after the devil are, to me, fascinating. There, there are a number of them. At one point, I looked up and tried to kind of calculate a number, and I know that there were dozens, but I don't remember what the tally was that I came up with, but there were dozens of places that had the word devil in them that is it's it's absolutely fascinating and and again it's one of those things it's a little like trying to look at distant stars when you stare at it directly you can't see it but you can see it out of the periphery yeah and that's a little what it feels like you you had these these incredibly iconic incredibly spooky incredibly dark names and you're like oh my gosh there's something there and then when you try to stare directly at it and find the thing oftentimes you are mistaken you know you feel like you you haven't gotten there you haven't found anything it's not there it's you're just looking at the mundane world there's there's nothing really powerful here and then you turn away and something will still be there just out of reach yes and i i do feel like that is that's appropriate with this story it's also appropriate with the legend of joe's cave Yes, it is. This is a fascinating story, and it begins with the, just by the naming of it, this aspect of a haunted cave. Yes. And, and a fiddle, which is associated <laughs> with the devil. And a fiddle. <laughs> yes. In our last episode, we talked a little bit about the Amanda Fulbright case. But, and it's kind of, it is wrapped up with Joe's cave, perhaps, perhaps not. But we, we are in Southern Camden County and it, it strikes me that this is such an ephemeral tale that the cave is named Joe's cave. So you would think that there must be a real Joe involved, but that's not necessarily clear. No, the, it is not. It is, no. it is a very complex history that has a very compelling lore. Yes. I guess just so it makes 
since revisiting the Amanda Fulbright story just briefly. Amanda Fulbright and her family lived in the area within just a couple of miles of the cave in the 1830s. And Amanda was murdered. She was 10 years old. She was murdered from all the records. It was either 1836, 1837. That's, that's where it starts with everything is a bit vague. We know that this happened, but the date is, is in question. And no one discovered her, her murderer. Now you turn to the cave and the story of Joe. Joe in lore, in the folktale, really, is an ex-slave, which we don't really have a, a bad story of how he gained his freedom or why he's there as a, as a freeman. And he is a very talented fiddle player in high demand for playing dances and hootenannies, et cetera. And he's an extremely handsome fellow that catches the eye of a lot of the women. And the story goes that he was flirting with a woman and she may have been flirting with him, but at, at a dance. And then he took things too far and she said no, and he ended up killing her. But we, in this part version, we don't have a name of the woman and she's not a 10 year old girl, but he's hunted down basically. And the lore goes that it's a man named Rafferty that kills him. Of course, also associated with Joe's cave being in Rafferty Hollow. Yes, yes, Rafferty, Rafferty Hollow and the Fulbrights live just a mile or two away. And that's why it's probably confused or conflated between the two. The story goes that the cave is haunted, that you can hear fiddle music playing. Yes. And that maybe some of Joe's remains were there petrified. Right. Now, I think that there, there's, there's a couple of things. The legend of the of the haunted of the cave haunted by the fiddler mm -hmm. is iconic throughout Appalachia and the Ozarks. Yes. And there there's some I, I would I would posit that there's a couple of interesting things to consider. One is the historical context in a in an era before air conditioning and large buildings. In, the, in, in Appalachia and the Ozarks, caves were used essentially as, as gathering places, community centers, and dance halls. Yes, there, there was a, a huge one in, in Joplin, Crystal Cave, which actually is reportedly the largest geode in the world. And I love that. I really, really love that. Now, another thing, and this reminds me of a conversation I had very early on in regards to music in the Ozarks. And, and of course, the, the Charlie Daniels song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, associates the devil with fiddle music. And mm -hmm. today, with lots and lots of little kids learning Ozark fiddle and violin being 
perfectly understood and accepted, et cetera. We, we look at that and we shake our heads and we say, that's so silly. But it was explained to me, even as late as the 1950s and 60s in some areas of the Ozarks, including Christian County, that there were, there were two types of music gatherings and the safe kind, the music party, would be typically in someone's home and it would be involve a piano mm -hmm. and it was notable in the fact that the locations sometimes in more unsavory locations that had a fiddle player in many cases not all also involved a couple of points one the fact that people were drinking and mm -hmm. And of course we can say, oh, that's no big deal. But the other was that you weren't, <laughs> your, your increased risk of getting stabbed went up dramatically based on the crowd. And yes, well, and that goes back to, you know, juke joints in general. Yes. And that the, 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 the establishment crowd and the fiddle players were in culturally in conjunction with one another. Mm-hmm. And so the association was made. And while we can, of course, laugh because that's really silly, it's not silly if you're the one who gets stabbed. Exactly. And so the kind of music being played often did have a correlation with how dangerous it was or how much of a risk you were running being there. And... A, a, an aspect of Ozark culture that I think is is evidenced of having been a part of Ozark culture for forever is that these aspects of society have always been there, mm -hmm. uh, will always be there. They could be representative of, you know, represented by different cultural aspects through the generations. But you combine that with this you combine this particular cultural dynamic societal dynamic with it taking place in what was the what was the locations that would be most opportune in the 19th century in the 1800s was with caves so yeah. you you have basically the 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 quote-unquote fringe of society you have people getting very drunk you have people getting stabbed and shot, and you have fiddle players all within the same milieu. And you also have what would be considered combinations of people in outside of genteel society. Yes, which all is a, you know, just a stirred pot for all kinds of stories. And so it's not that surprising that you end up with a story like this. But you still always want to, what did it come from? What grain of truth is there that in this particular case, the film music really did end up in ruination? Yes. And, and of course, in, in, you know, in the following generations, there is something exceptionally haunting about the imagery and the, the, the oral image, you know, the oral environment of standing in a cave and hearing ghostly fiddle music playing from somewhere in the dark recesses. I, you know, I, I can personally ad attest to it a bit in that, 
at the Kendrick House in Carthage in the slave cabin. Ironically, we very rarely catch EVPs or other evidence, although a number of people have seen the, seen the image of a black man standing at one of the windows. But what we have caught is what well, sounds like harmonica music, which would fall in the same category, really, mm, as little music. And, and just to, to book in that, again, coming back to the various aspects of our work with Dark Ozarks, it's very important to parse out and understand, for example, where some of this lore comes from, how societal images get created how those images can get passed down. And in some cases, and this is one of those cases, a variety of documented events and undocumented events being fused together to create the lore. And then right. that lore being passed down from generation to generation. Lots and lots of moving parts, lots of ob objective data, lots of past lore that I think is on one level easy for individuals to dismiss but without the respect that is necessary to say this lore is also part of the compendium of the culture yes and lastly the fact that these places can be haunted mm -hmm. and the phenomena of ghostly fiddle music can happen and these places and these dark spaces that at one point were, were full of music and firelight and moonshine and giddiness and, and also violence and death are now these empty holes in the ground with the extraordinary capacity for paranormal activity as well. I agree. I mentioned Crystal Cave earlier and it, it's almost haunting in its inaccessibility. It was a show cave. It was a dance hall for a number of years. And then when mining ceased after World War II, they stopped pumping water out and now it's flooded. And so over time, the building on top of it, that was the entrance with the stairs to go down, it was taken down and paved over. And now it basically sits under parking lot and under fourth street it's almost a block the size of a city block and the only access is a four inch pipe that every few years they'll they'll put a camera down to see how things are going wow it's that's mm, actually quite sad it is, it is, and it, it, out of practicality, comes down to what it would take to pump water out of it. If that's fair. <laughs> but it, it, it also illustrates these places were very active with life, with people in many, any, many places throughout the region used for different purposes and then over time are basically abandoned they are and and during that time they would have been 
they would have been the cool place to be. They would have been the the end place to be. They would have been the most relevant spots in many cases for that local community. And, exactly. And many of the many of the locations for Joe's Cave in question are now underwater as well. True. That, I, I that is realized, true. I just realized Crystal Cave is possibly one of the world's largest geos that's also doubling as a snow globe in reverse. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> water bubble. I can take you by sometime. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want to see it tomorrow night. <laughs> what a wave! We can do that. <laughs> we, we can do that very easily. It's just a few blocks from where we're going to be. Nice, nice. Now coming back to the South Lake of the Ozarks area, we we've got this really interesting case of a of a gentleman named Billy Martin. Yes. Billy Martin is almost like 1800 in his and Maggie, his wife, are almost like a 19th century version of natural born killers. <laughs> Fair. It really is interesting to me. I mean, we've covered some other similar kinds of stories, but certainly not with the outcome that this had. This starts in the Lebanon area. Billy was from the Eldridge area. And he goes to work for a man outside of Lebanon on his farm, uh, Jesse and Charles Pruitt. I think he worked for Charles. And he gets into a fight with them. He ends up pulling a gun and shooting Charles, killing him and wounding Jesse. Now, history and the history of Lake County uh, narratives say that he was charged with murder, but that he was acquitted later that same, well, shortly after the turn of the year in 1879. And so we don't know, we don't know a lot of details on, on that one. So it shows that he was acquitted. And then he ultimately gets into an argument with his uncle, his uncle, George Miser. It was his uncle, but they, they were within about five years of age of each other. And George is married to a woman named Anna who had a reputation for having affairs and getting involved with other men. George thought Billy was spreading rumors about Anna is one version. Another version is that Billy had kind of boasted that he could have his way with Anna if he wanted. And George got mad at him and threatened him that he had enough, he, he knew enough that he could get Billy hanged, presumably on about the Pruitt case. And one thing led to another and George ends up dead. <laughs> June 9th, 1849. Plowing a field. <laughs> yeah, was shot while plowing a field near his house. Yes. So they they end up arresting Billy. He's charged with murder, and he's found guilty. Now, his attorney had, had requested a, filed a motion for a new trial, and it, and it ultimately, ultimately gets appealed all the way up to the Missouri Supreme Court. 
In the meantime, Billy's in the Lake Cleve County Jail, which the old jail has been torn down in the last year or two. I, I went by it two or three years ago and, and took some photos. But he's in jail, and Sheriff Wilson's niece, Maggie, would help out around the jail and, and bring food to the prisoners, etc. Well, before long, she and Billy are involved, and she helps Billy escape. She steals the keys to the cell, lets him out, steals at least one of her uncle's guns, and they run basically run off in the night, stealing horses along the way. Which and Maggie <laughs> Maggie cuts off her hair and dresses like a man, and they're disguised as two young men as just yes. traveling the country. Exactly. So they end up going to North Carolina, where they get married. While they're out there, detectives come out looking for a a fugitive and Billy thinks they're looking for him but they aren't actually but he he assaults them and they make off and they are on the run again they ended up in Tennessee if I remember right yes yeah uh, Sullivan County yeah through all of this, amazingly, they, uh, Billy got homesick and wrote letters to relatives. And somewhere along the lines, the letters end up in the hands of the new sheriff, Sheriff Goodall. And he goes to Tennessee to arrest, arrest Billy and bring him back, which he does. And they're on the train. And this turns into almost a fiasco, really. They're on the train. There are reporters on the train from St. Louis. Billy and Maggie both are giving interviews. Billy's telling them that, you know, the sheriff's um, just lucky they got the drop on him or Lickley County would be needing a new sheriff. And Maggie's professing her undying love for Billy, all the while she's very pregnant at this point. So at one point, the train slows down and Billy climbs out of a window and jumps out and runs off into the night while Maggie continues her interviews with, with the reporters. <laughs> and then Maggie's held in the county jail for helping him escape and stealing the, her uncle's rifle and money and so forth. So ultimately, Billy gets lucky that the Supreme Court ends up deciding that there was error in the murder trial about his uncle, George Miser, in that the prosecution brought up the Pruitt case. Presumably it prejudiced the jury against him, which they shouldn't have done because he was not convicted of that crime. And he's granted a new, a, a new trial and he, he does turn himself in that, at that point. Then they move the trial to Dallas County, and he is found not guilty. But he is found guilty of stealing the horses that he and Maggie <laughs> escaped on. And so he ends up spending four years in the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jefferson City. Finally released in 1888. 
And at that point, he, he returns to Eldridge with Maggie and they live out their lives and eventually he becomes a minister. Yes, it, it is. It, it's a fascinating story. I, I think it's interesting that it, it does not have a, a wider audience because it has so many moving parts. It has such a such a phenomenal narrative. It, it really does. It, it, it really, really does. Part of our material is an interview with Don Fong, who is a who is a descendant of Billy and Maggie's. And one of my favorite statements is in here is that at one point, one of Maggie's granddaughters asked her about writing the family history. And Maggie says, don't dig too deep as you'll only turn up two things, horse thieves and liars. <laughs> it's it's really it's phenomenal it would make an incredible film and it's uh, (laughs) and a a surprisingly happy ending yes i think i think that's what is really amazing is that go through all of this potentially two murders plus you know several more victims of violence and basically nothing came of it and it's actually a story that ultimately it, it was not for want that you know a criminal career just continued he, you know literally did turn over that leaf and had led a, a peaceful life so I, I guess maybe maybe got the wild hair out and that was it I guess yeah. Well, and we're dealing with we're dealing with two individuals who are not very old. No, when this all started, uh, Billy was eighteen and Maggie was sixteen, if I remember right. So, it's sort of that Romeo and Juliet story with horses and trains and <laughs> guns. And realistically also a hell of a family family history to uncover about say your elderly grandparents exactly <laughs> yeah I, I i i can i can see the statement why she made what the statement she did if, if she did say that <laughs> <laughs> now also in this area and in, in this particular case benton and polk county missouri in the mm-hmm. 1840s there is a a largely overlooked vigilante movement. I'm on page 25. And uh-huh. the largely overlooked vigilante movement that resulted in what has been regionally dubbed the Slicker War. Yes. And it, it's pretty amazing that it's that it has been kind of forgotten. And it's centered in Benton and Polk counties, but there were other Slicker Wars and movements during the same time during the the 1830s and 40s. One was up in Lincoln County, Missouri. And I found reference last week to Slickers being in Barton County as well. as As a spoiler alert, the Slickers, the name is derived from the fact that the vigilantes, when they identified their target, would tie up the victim and beat the victim with fire 
hardened hickory sticks and cause the blood to run down the victim's back in such copious amounts that he was all slicked up with blood. Yes. Hence the slickers. Yes. And so, to be honest, there, there are a lot of parallels between this and the later Baldnobber movement. It is. It is. We're, and we're talking about around 40 years, 40 year yeah. difference. Yeah, because all of this really started in the late 1830s. Um, and, and it's also, to me, really interesting in terms of just the naming, the nomenclature of this, because the manner in which regional Americans used words descriptively has slowly mm-hmm. shifted over time. And this is a, a really fascinating example of that. It is. You know, I've heard the, the term many times, slick with blood. And to be honest, it, that phrase probably comes from this. Very, very realistic. And so the the feud, and there was a feud aspect of this, is the fact that it, it starts with a uh, man from Tennessee mm-hmm. uh, named Hiram Turk and his his three sons against a man named Andy Jones and his four sons. And Hiram Turk, who's referred to as Colonel Hiram Turk, settled from Tennessee around 1839 and set up a store and saloon south of Warsaw, Missouri, around what was then called Judy's Gap, is now called Quincy, mm-hmm. on the Butterfield Trail. And it's interesting, the, the family is described as well-educated and courteous, but also known to never back down from a fight. This sounds like Scots-Irish, if there ever was one. Yes, uh, I am, I'm sure that that's, that's the case. And for anyone interested, the, the Butterfield Trail was Stagecoach Trail. So they probably yeah. set up where the, where the stage stop. And yes. then also in the 1830s, the Andy Jones family moves from Kentucky, settled along the Palm de Terre River, and were suspected of counterfeiting, as well as known for gambling and horse racing. Yes, and, and here's the thing. It's almost like Joe's cave legend. You've got two things going on, really, that come, come to full force here. You have this feud between the Turks and the Joneses. But why the Jones are suspected of counterfeiting is because some of the Joneses are associated with John Avey, the Phantom of the Ozarks, who we discussed in our last episode, who really yeah. was a mafia boss before there ever was a thing. And was counterfeiting in out of the caves in Haha, currently Haha Tonka State Park. Yes, yes. In, in Camden. And so that that line between essentially Warsaw and Camden is is one that these days you might not necessarily make that connection and and of course driving just driving around today you would have no idea that all of this complex and dark history had taken place no you you really wouldn't and he employed hundreds of people in this in his counterfeiting operation and it basically supplied counterfeit 
paper currency and coinage clear across the country. It was, it was the largest basically criminal operation in the nation, all based out of Hahatanka Spring. And the Joneses were aligned with that. So you have the slicker war coming out of a personal feud as well as the counterfeiting operation, which that counterfeiting operation was known as the Bank of Niangua. Niangua as in the river, not the town, but it wasn't the, a bank. That's just what they, that's just what colloquially they called criminal organization. And so you have the slickers, basically vigilantes getting fed up with everything going on. And it's spurred in part by the counterfeiting operation and in part then is fueled by this feud going on. And basically all blows up on election day in 1840. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Hiram Turk store was the polling place. Yes. And Andy Jones comes in, presumably to vote. And he and Hiram Turk's son, Jim, gets into an argument. And Hiram's other son, Tom, ends up pulling a knife. Nobody is seriously injured, but the Turks were charged with assault and starting a riot. I, I like the added charge of starting a riot on this. <laughs> And then witnessing all this is one of their neighbors, Abraham Knoll. Now, back with the last episode, Knoll was involved with A.V. at the Bank of Niangua. And he vaguely may be associated with the legend of Joe's Cave, as Knoll ultimately killed a man named Rafferty who supposedly Rafferty killed Joe, but there's no, there's no empirical evidence showing that Rafferty killed Joe, but was killed by Noel. So all of these stories are actually interrelated in some ways. But anyway, the, um, the church threatened Noel with a gun if he testified against them. <laughs> And then Noel ends up killing Hiram's son, Jim. Yeah. And disappearing. But then he later comes back. Of course he does. <laughs> well, too much lure and money, probably from the counterfeit <laughs> operations, my guess. <laughs> Something that is really interesting about this portion of the story is that the Turk family really seems to be getting the short end of the stick here. Well, they, they do. I mean, unless we're missing something. Now, on the other hand, the Turks were quick to turn in one of the Joneses' relatives that was a fugitive, so. Yes, that was, that was James Morton. Uh, he was an Alabama fugitive, and there was a bounty hunter, presumably from Alabama, that comes looking for him. The Turks and get James Morton delivered to the bounty hunter. They return to Alabama, and then in Alabama, Morton is acquitted and returns to Missouri. And then on top <laughs> of that, somebody here ends up charging Hiram Turk with kidnapping, uh, presumably our, our Alabama fugitive. Yeah. But then the charge was dropped. 
Well, probably dropped when he showed back up. But. <laughs> and then this moves forward to July 17th, 1841, when Andy Jones shoots and kills Hiram Turk. Yeah, basically as revenge for turning in Morton. Yeah. And, and he's charged with murder, but he's acquitted as well. Yes, we I notice a theme here. What are what are your thoughts on this? Well, again, you I think you have to go back to the John Avey story because we know that John Avey, the Phantom of the Ozarks, and he was known as the Phantom of the Ozarks because he could come and go as he pleased and disappear. And you had the state militia looking for him. You had federal agents looking for him and they couldn't find him. And my guess is that he was pressured and he was known to have politicians in his pocket that basically he was exerting pressure in favor of, of the Joneses who it sounds like maybe were working in his operation. It does. It does. It, it really strikes me as interesting that when you when you take the 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 AV, the Bank of Niangua, the counterfeiting into consideration with this, mm-hmm. that it it seems like with the with the Hiram Turk family, you have you have a Tennessee family that's hot headed, but overall aiming or or attempting to be very decent people and getting caught within the essentially within the crossfire and not necessarily understanding the system that they were coming up against exactly and to be fair i'm not sure that from everything that that is known about john avey he was running an operation like no one had really run one before. Mm-hmm. And so there, there really wasn't a precedent in, in North America of having such a large, dangerous criminal organization, sort of potentially maybe some of the pirates on the high sea. But again, they, they were not working with nearly as many operatives as he did. And so my and, uh, guess is the first really didn't realize how much of a danger they were running when they were poking the bear. And, and the fact that, that initially they were, they were functioning under mountain honor mm-hmm. and up and up until the point and the breaking point seems to be July 17th, 1841, when Hiram Turk is murdered. And that, yeah. and for clarification, Hiram is the father of, of all these boys. Right. Basically, he's dead and Jones is acquitted. And so basically, that's when the feud really goes full out. And, and Turk's surviving sons, in good mountain and honor culture fashion, announce exactly what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they say they're going. They're going to drive out the underbelly, including the th- the thieves, the counterfeiters, counterfeiters, and murderers, including the Joneses. And that's, that oh, that's opening a big war. 
<clears throat> it is. I mean, that's that's the beginning of the slicker war, and what they're what they're doing as a vigilantes, and presumably it's obviously not just Turks surviving sons. It's a number of individuals who are joining together with them in the vigilante mm -hmm. action, and they identify their targets. They tie them to trees and they whip them with. And I think it's funny because the term here is his hickory switches, the hickory sticks, and they're yeah. beating them in some cases so brutally that they that their victims die afterwards. Yeah, I mean it's almost you know uh, flailing them. So basically, the Turk posse or the slickers, they go after these elements, and then in April of 1842, Abraham Knoll comes back to the area and is arrested. He's arrested for murder of Jim Turk, the son, but again is later acquitted. Yes. But again, make you suspect that John Avey is passing money around for, for bribes, etc. That was in April of 1842. And in October, Noel is shot and killed by a member, of one or more of the Turk vigilantes. Yes. And then they go after Andy Jones directly. Yes, unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully. And they say they, they almost, in, in the process, they almost kill an innocent bystander, Samuel Yates. At, at this point, it's out of control. It is. And then there's a justice of the peace in Benton County by the name of DeWitt Ballou. And so he's trying to reestablish peace and order, not, not very successfully at this point, and basically puts together like a, a militia group almost, but fails. And again, that goes back to the strength of the John Avey gang. I think if you it does. reading between the lines. So basically the, the, the governor is called in and, and he sends out the state militia then. Yes. Uh, at the end of that, 38 of the Turk men. So now we actually have a minimum number the, of, yeah. uh, of essentially men within the community who were ostensibly fed up with the shadow government and of of the phantom of the ozarks john avey and the the resulting violence and counterfeiting and horse thieving and all these things that were going on in addition to the violence and so right a total of 38 slickers were charged with the near killing of samuel yates but the case never went to trial <laughs> i don't think we can blame that one on john avey though <laughs> His interests have been served by them being found guilty, so. Yes. Then later, Tom Turg is killed by one of his own posse members, which really begins to suggest that both sides of this war clearly have issues. Yeah. And or that, you know, maybe there was a, a traitor in the midst. It's, it's hard to know. And sometimes just this level of violence just takes on a life of its own and, and things end up happening that don't really make sense. 
I mean, again, there's still parallels with all of this with the with the bald knobbers later on. There are just there are that odd life of its own mentality. Andy Jones goes to Texas, which I can't necessarily blame him. <laughs> no, but unsuccessfully goes to Texas. True, true. He's followed by Nathan Turk. And then is then Jones is arrested for stealing horses, and Nathan Turk testifies against him, and he's found guilty and hanged. So ultimately, as, as you said, the 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 Turks were kind of getting the short end of the stick. Ultimately, the, one of the Turks finally kind of got a little justice, if you want to look at it that way. But then Nathan, whom we were just speaking of, is killed in a Louisiana gunfight, and. Mrs. Hiram Turk, with her one remaining son, goes back to Tennessee. You know, I can't really blame her. I can't either. The rest of the Jones clan uh, apparently also moves out of the area. And this feud was over. But it obviously, although the the catalyst was between the, the Jones and the Turk family in between, essentially between the, the Warsaw and Camden area, the reverberations of this vigilante war had to have continued to some degree in terms of shaping consciousness of the region. I, I would think so. You know, yes, and vigilantism continued. And then basically, as I mentioned earlier, Lincoln County further east had their own vigilante motivated chaos that was termed a slicker war. But over time, they got a little more organized and they would have a captain. It became more of a almost a military style group. Then there were also slicker organizations in St. Charles in McDonald County. And as I said, I found a reference to slickers in uh, Barton County as well during the same time. Uh, as well and as the development of the anti-slickers. Yes, that's that's true. Then you had the anti-slickers, which basically people getting fed up with the vigilantes going too far. <laughs> which, again, mirrors the bald knobbers and the anti-bald knobbers. Which, which may, may point to sort of the larger pattern of what tends to happen with these types of events that they... Maybe there's a little more predictable way they run their course. I think it's, I think that is a fair and really interesting observation. I also think it's really interesting that, that, that there's an initial inciting element and then, for lack of a better word, copycat groups spring up throughout the region and the name becomes almost a brand. Very true, very true. And it's also interesting, there are some accounts of the Slicker War, though, that really don't focus on the Turk-Jones feud and just focus more on the Bank of Niangua and John Avey that basically citizens are fed up with his criminal element. And so maybe it kind of comes down to if you were an observer, what evil were you most fed up with that you identified it with? Yes. And again, I think we're, we're also dealing with 
something that, while not unique to the Ozarks, is a really powerful societal element of the Ozarks that's oftentimes overlooked. And that is what I would classify as extreme regionalism. The fact that a corner of a county can have its own narrative, it can have its own guiding forces in terms of families and dominant families. And in a way, it's almost like the Irish kingdoms, the fact that in, in 8900, when the, when the Viking incursions began in Ireland and they were looking at copying their success in, in England, particularly York, uh, where they, they defeated the King of York and, or the, you know, the, the kingdom structure, and then they had an entire land they, they tried that in Ireland and then come to find out that the estimate of the number of high kings in Ireland around 8,900 is somewhere between 275 and 350 kings, individual kingdoms. And I posit that the, the Scots-Irish carried with them the genetic memory of this type of structure. And you see throughout the Ozarks, and it's one of those things that it, it is there, it is undeniably there, but then you go digging, you know, if you, if you don't know to go digging for it, if you don't know to listen for it, you could just see land without realizing oh, yeah. that very small individual spaces, eighth of a county, a quarter of a county, is it, in essence its own kingdom. Yeah, and, and that still exists in, in many places on certain levels. I, I agree with you there. What really is interesting to me is how widespread the slicker wars were across Missouri, and yet they ended up basically being relegated to the dustbin of history. Yes, which... Just from a historical standpoint, I think is unfortunate. It's obviously I wouldn't have wanted to live through that particular region's vigilante violence at the time or tried to live through it, but it is really, it is really absolutely fascinating in terms of analysis. It is. It really, really is. So in essence, you know, we really did have a lot of murderers on, on the run through the Lake of those Arts region over a long period of time. We did. We did. And and many more. I think obviously if there's particular stories from the region that you would like us to cover, oh. let us know. But I know that as we continue to dig, we're just going to find more and more. Oh definitely. Something that that I find really fascinating, and I'm on page 60 of our notes, is this legend of a phantom church steeple lost beneath, beneath the lake, waves of the lake. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a bit eerie. It, it is, it is. And it, it actually reminds me, although the, the legends, it's, it's a, again, an intersection point between real history the reality that what that that which is lost between beneath the lake with lore and with uh with a certain amount of storytelling and magic now what i do think is interesting and i cannot tell you the name of this particular 
impounded lake reservoir in Wales. And if I could tell you, uh, I might not be able to pronounce it because my Welsh is a little sketchy. Not non-existent, but a little sketchy. That said- That's fair, because I think Welsh is one of the hardest languages out there. So many consonants. And the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the of particular note, it was a, a lake impoundment that inundated a valley in Wales. It was for very similar purposes for the creation of electricity and hydroelectric power. Interestingly enough, it was hydroelectric power scheduled to go to England, not Wales, although Wales was the land that got inundated. And at one point in, in the lake, still standing today, is a stone village, including a stone church that is accessible only by scuba divers. It is, the footage from this is unbelievably eerie. The, the misty green space of the lake and then emerging out of that, these, these stone buildings and the, the, the iconic Welsh church. And, and that's the, the imagery and the idea that I think is being evoked here with these legends of the lost church of the lake. Yes, and it, it seems very, again, the word ephemeral comes to mind that almost like the Mandela effect, everyone, so many people say, yes, I know it, it's true, but it's hard to pin down where it is exactly. But it is supposed to be in Lynn Creek Cove. And, and we're dealing with the, the, the town of Old Lynn Creek. You know, the main street is now under 30 to 40 feet of water. And in the, in the process, the, the town itself was raised before the inundation of the lake. Uh-huh. The, and, 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 you know, it is, it is comparatively a testimony to the process and going back to before the completion of Bagnell Dam in 1931, for example, the churches, the stained glass windows, their pews, their flooring, their bells were removed and incorporated into the new, new churches, the new churches being built. And then the, the remains of the churches were knocked down or burned down to eliminate the, essentially what was going to become a debris field. Right. Well, and another thing here is that the churches that were in the town, none of them fit the bill for seeing a steeple. <laughs> so even aside from that, even if even if they were all intact, none of them really fit that bill. One was a simple wood frame structure, another was brick and wood both had wooden bell towers, not steeples. And the third church had a stone bell tower that resembled more of a square turret, like a castle turret. So even if they hadn't been taken down, none of, the, none of them had a steeple to be visible. And and additionally, just part of this lore, there is the, the, the legend or the story that you can hear a church bell tolling 
but from beneath the waters. I mean, this is, this reminds me of the fiddle music playing in the cave. It does. It does. And, and of course, there's the, the reality of physics that if there was a bell being physically rung uh, underwater, it wouldn't be creating that sort of sound. But, you know, something that we had discussed at times over a variety of episodes, we, we've talked about, for example, haunted houses and upcoming, we're going to be doing a series on haunted mansions of the Ozarks, haunted mansions of the Ozarks borderlands. But something that is consistent with the haunted house motif is the idea that it's a house that there are ghosts within it. You, not unique to the Ozarks, but I'm sure, but certainly a, an interesting facet of regional lore is the idea of the phantom house. The, yes. the fact that the, the, the house itself is the ghost that sometimes appears, sometimes disappears. And then very strange things happen around it. It does bring up the conjecture that elements of this, that which was lost beneath the waves might manifest itself as some type of phantom. That's true. I mean, that is true. Now, I, I would ascribe to that more perhaps if the phantom church looked like one of the churches that have been there <laughs> that is the one that is the one issue now of course in phantom house lore in the region there are times that the phantom house is not of a house that has been taken down or destroyed but a phantom house in a space that never had a house so perhaps it's one of the churches re-envisioning itself in a different form i and i'm not trying to be i'm not being facetious on yeah. that i'm just saying that sometimes people talk about our own image of ourselves and perhaps apparitions appearing as their their own vision of themselves an old person appearing as they did when they were younger, things like that, or perhaps before they were ill or before an accident or, or something along those lines. And if place can reimagine, so if place can imagine itself risen again, maybe it can manifest slightly different. It, it, I think that that's interesting conjecture. I really do. I'm coming back to the Arthurian legends of the Lady of the Lake. I, Actually, I, I was thinking that while ago while you were talking too, that it does remind me a lot of the Lady of the Lake. It reminds me of you know, our, our ancient Celtic lore that water is a powerful portal to the underworld or the other world. People are considered to be deeply sacred spaces. I find it interesting because we potentially created a massive conjure with every one of these impoundments, and then we're having a party on top of it. <laughs> well, yes, at the lake, you literally having a party on top of it. <laughs> yes. Oh, hadn't thought it about is, that. <laughs> and and as our as our closing notes and and closing story on this, I do think this is interesting. We have a a case in Memorial Day weekend, which is May twenty eighth, nineteen fifty four, 
that at least 13 people boarded a small excursion boat named uh, the Grand Glaze for a tour of Lake of the Ozarks, and nearly half of them would drown. Yes. Again, it, it, it almost evokes echoes of legend from, from old. And it's really still unexplained. That's the interesting thing, too. The boat was of, of comparatively decent size. There's photos of it on the internet. But a narrow beam, we're looking at about eight feet, the, the passengers would, would sit on rows of leather seats and the forward cabin would sit aft beneath canopy. And the, uh, the Grand Glaze had a 678 cubic inch engine and would go across the lake at 25 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this was not, you know, just your trolling along, having dinner kind of thing. This was a pretty powerful boat, but apparently a freak storm blew up, conjectured it have possibly even been a tornado and capsized the boat but then it becomes a mystery there's discrepancies that there's different versions of how many people were on board and even how many people died there are the basic gist is that three women one child two young men and two 16 year old girls drowned right in the, in the capsizing and the storm but then there starts to get to be more and more questions if there were more than that on the boat that weren't essentially recorded. Right. Basically, like last minute borders type thing. And particularly a young couple, newlyweds, Thomas and Dorothy Fahey. Yes. Uh, and they had, had just been married just a handful of days prior newlyweds they were thought to have gone on board the grand glaze they had been staying at a campground near the lake and their car was found abandoned near the boat's point of origin so yeah so that made people think perhaps they had on the boat as well basically the Chicago Tribune reported that their family said they had they had sent word saying that they were accompanying some friends to the boat, but that they weren't going themselves. And so the family assumed that they must have changed their mind and, and gone. But they never could actually determine if they were on board or not. But to the point that their family actually sued the the company that owned the boat for wrongful death but the court determined that there wasn't enough proof that they that they were on board much less that they were drowned and there there was one case in which one of the survivors said that they recalled hearing a man call the name dorothy over and over after they were struggling in the water and there were no other passengers named dorothy however that's in the midst of all of this chaos, so it's awfully difficult to pin down. Right. And again, you, you have to wonder, once the question was brought up, were they on yeah. there? Was it a matter of suggestion that the recollection was Dorothy versus something else? Yes. 
And to me, what is of, of rather haunting note is after this accident, the Grand Glaze is actually recommissioned shortly after that and operated for a number of years afterwards. It and its sister ship, the Tuscumbia, were later stored and both ships were destroyed by fire in 1970. Which is, which is a bit eerie, kind of like the Titanic and her sister ship. <laughs> both uh, going down. It is, and it, you know, as, as, a, as a part of our, of our conclusion, something that Again, I think coming back to the aspect of the lake as a portal, something that gets overlooked is the, the simple fact that these very large lakes, Table Rock, Lake of the Ozarks, etc., under very specific conditions become unbelievably dangerous. Yes, they do. Unbelievably dangerous and fodder for urban legend as well, as some of the bodies were never recovered. Mm-hmm. And there's even been, you know, some people speculate that the people who were not found were eaten by a giant catfish. And we're back to the catfish. <laughs> and we're back to the catfish. Basically, your monster, your lake monster. Yes. And, and also the, the portent or the omen, the death omen, which to me is very chilling. The Grand Glaze goes back into service less than two weeks after the incident. Same captain, who was the youngest captain, was, Graham Jr. was extremely young. And four years later, the Tuscumbia inadvertently runs over and kills a water skier on the lake in the same area that the Grand Glaze capsized. Yeah, I mean, there, there's... Lots of coincidences there that, you know, you just have to, you either say it's pure coincidence or it certainly does feed the fodder for the lore of mysteries of the lake. It does. The, 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 po- the portent of omen, the idea of a curse, all of these things swirl around the river monsters, even, even things like, you know, tribal lore in regards to weather conjurings and and movements of things within the atmosphere and through the land and and beneath this beneath the waves it's pretty spooky when you think about it 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 really is and but certainly a combination of lore that is worthy of the size of the lake it is in many ways a larger lake than I think a lot of people realize. Absolutely. Hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles of shoreline that can be deceptive because it's not one huge circular area. It's very long and strung out (laughs) and it's easy to not realize the vastness that you are really in uh, very much so very much so sometimes even the individual regional spaces of the ozarks are much larger than we anticipate they, they really are but a lot of a lot of things to think about there and 
to consider if you are going to the lake. <laughs> Happy summer, everybody. Happy summer. Happy summer time. And that might be a good place to, to end tonight. Yes. We want to remind everyone not to forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. On the next episode, we are going to be discussing the most iconic hauntings of Joplin, Missouri. Catch the Dark Ozarts podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. Remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.